The humiliation and exaltation of Joseph has been the main storyline of Genesis since chapter 37. And we have traced God's providential guidance of his life circumstances that positioned him not only to be the savior of his people, but the savior of the world in that day. Now, at the end of chapter 47, the narrative shifts back to Jacob as the main character, which closes out his life and the passing of the covenant blessing of Abraham to his 12 sons. It begins with his adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh that we read earlier and closes with Jacob's death and burial in chapter 50. And according to Hebrews chapter 11, Genesis 48 is the highlight of Joseph's epitaph of faith, where it says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. You remember that when Jacob first came to Egypt and met with Pharaoh, he had a one-sentence synopsis of his life, which was, Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. That was a pessimistic outlook uh, with no mention of the Lord's goodness, the Lord's grace, or intervention. It also occurred 17 years prior to chapter 48. Now Jacob is on his deathbed, and his appraisal of his life is quite different. His faith has matured. That which was once unsteady, marred by mistakes, and messed up by scheming and deceit, has now become settled and firm. In our journey of faith, this should be true as well. Faith at the twilight of our walk with God should be much firmer, stronger, and far more mature than the beginning of our salvation. And just like Jacob, we go through many ups and downs in life. We don't always respond to circumstances the way that we ought. But our faith should be constantly increasing until our dying day. And at the close of our life, we should be able to look back and be thankful for God's guidance and care as Jacob was. Jacob not only looked back on his final days, he looked forward with the eye of faith, and blessed future generations. As we observe his final words to Joseph, we detect some fruit of mature faith. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Some fruit of mature faith in the life of Jacob. It took him an entire lifetime for his faith to mature, as it will ours. But through God's living word and the power of his spirit, we can advance in mature faith much more quickly than he did. So let's endeavor to do so this morning as we observe Jacob's fruit of mature faith. Our Heavenly Father, we are again thankful for the truth of your word. We're thankful for the lives of the patriarchs. Lord, we realize that we can identify with them pretty well because our faith ebbs and and wanes as well. We just pray, Lord, that you'll help us to, as we grow older, develop a more mature uh, understanding of you, increase faith in you, that our walk with you might be closer. 
But Lord, we pray your blessing upon uh, your word today as we take a look at uh, the mature faith at the end of Jacob's life. We ask in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, we're going to take a look at five of the fruits of this mature faith this morning. And the first one we find in the first seven verses. And here we have a confirmation that God always keeps his word. That's the first fruit we see here of his mature faith. A confirmation that God always keeps his word. Now let's take a look here at the circumstances as this chapter begins. It came to pass that after these things. Well, that's alluding back to chapter 17. And the 17-year sojourn in Egypt, which is really totally blanked out by our author. We don't know anything that really happened during that time. So this is the, the end of uh, those years as Jacob now uh, passes on the patriarchal blessing to the sons who will make up the nation of Israel. Now, when Jacob realized at the end of the last chapter his death was imminent, he made Joseph promise to bury him, not in Egypt, but in Canaan. So that's where he staked his claim on the promise of God concerning the land of future generations. And that's where he wanted to be, the land of promise. Now, soon after that, we find here that Jacob becomes ill, verse 1 of chapter 48, and uh, he's on his deathbed. The word is carried to his son, who still has responsibilities in the Egyptian government, so they're probably not living uh, that near each other. And so Joseph, hearing his father is sick, hearing that he's probably on his deathbed, takes his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to see his father for the last time, and no doubt to receive a blessing from his lips. Now, <clears throat> we might note here that Jacob is named as well as Israel. And Jacob is the one who is old. He's frail. He's sick. He's about to die. Jacob, in a sense, is the old man willing to do anything to obtain God's blessing. But he rises up, not as Jacob, but as Israel, the new man, the man of faith, who now is going to pass on the blessing, not only to Joseph, but his other sons. And it is as Israel, not Jacob, that he pronounces the blessing, the spiritual man, the man of faith. Now, Jacob's confirmation of God's faithfulness to his promises is found in verses 3 and 4. And he rehearses to his son uh, his attitude about the Lord. Verse 3, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you <clears throat> as an everlasting possession. So he calls upon, again, that, uh, that scene where God Almighty, the awesome God, the all-powerful God, met with him and named him Israel, 
And at that event, he promised again to give him the land and make of him a multitude, a company, a communion of people. And this promise is now about to be passed on to the fourth generation. It all began with Abraham, really well over a hundred years ago, whose faith also overcame many trials and, and matured. It passed on to Isaac, who in many ways was a faithful man. That seemed to ebb toward the end of his life, but nevertheless, the promise uh, passed to Jacob. And now Jacob, at the end of his life, is ready to carry that promise and give it to his descendants. And some of those descendants are standing there right before him, descendants that God had promised. And Jacob is seeing the living proof of the fulfillment of God's word, of God's blessing to him. And despite of our failures of faith, our backsliding, our short-sightedness, God never fails to keep his word, to keep his promise, to bless us. Now, with this truth in mind, Jacob is now ready to incorporate Joseph's sons into that promised inheritance. Remember, they were born in Egypt. They did not come down from Canaan. And so what about them? How do they fall in this plan of God? Well, what we have described here is really kind of an official adoption procedure where he brings them uh, officially before God into the family. And although the boys were born in Egypt, that does not annul them from the promise of God, the inheritance of God. And Jacob now claims them as his own. He says they are mine, and he gives them the same status as his two firstborn sons back in Haran. He says in verse uh, 5, Your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you, they're mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. In other words, they're on the same plane. They're equal with my first two sons born in the land of Haran, and they are going to be incorporated in the promise as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. And then he says, verse 6, Your offspring whom you beget after them shall be yours. And they will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. Now, we don't know of any other sons that Joseph had. If there were uh, any, they were not named in God's word. We assume there were. But what, Joseph, uh, what Jacob is doing is, is saying here that the blessing is going to be on these two sons. If you have any others, they'll be incorporated into the tribes of their brothers. They won't have a separate tribe. This will keep the number to 12, as we'll see uh, as time moves forward. Uh, but they're going to be recognized together as the tribe of Joseph, which becomes two tribes now, a double portion, a double blessing of the birthright in Ephraim and Manasseh. And as he reminds himself of these things, uh, the name of Rachel comes up, who, of course, is a mother of Joseph. And he remembers this sad affair, and we kind of wonder, well, why did he mention that here? It doesn't really seem to, to fit into what he is saying. However, um, <clears throat> Rachel is the favored wife, 
And you'll remember that Rachel has two sons, and her firstborn is Joseph. So by all rights, Joseph also is a firstborn son to a different mother. And so the birthright can legally pass to him as a firstborn. And the choice is being made by Jacob now that the promise of the birthright, the blessing of the birthright, will not go to Reuben. It will not go to the second son or the third son after him. It rather will go to the firstborn son of Rachel, who is Joseph. And the double portion goes upon his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now later we'll find out that Jacob's first three sons by Leah kind of forfeited the right by their actions, by their character. And Judah, the fourth son, is not given the promise of the birthright, but the promise of the royal seed of the chosen line that will eventually culminate in Christ, who will become the king. So in 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is verified for us, saying that Joseph received the birthright, but Judah received the promise of rulership. And this is a key theme of Genesis, is the promise of blessing moving forward. And Jacob now confirms that in his faith at the end of his life. So we have the confirmation that God always keeps his word, even when there are opportunities for us to mess it up. He overrules those things. Now, the second fruit is in verses 8 through 11. And what we see here is mature faith shows an appreciation of the gracious dealings of God. We find an appreciation of the gracious dealings of God in our life. Now, as this um, procedure moves forward, Verse 8 tells us that Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Well, that sounds like he doesn't know who they are, but that's really not the case. I don't see how it could be the case. If he really is not sure of their identity, well, that would probably be due to the fact his eyesight's failing, even as his father Isaac's eyesight had failed, down in verse 10. But it's more likely that he's calling upon Joseph to identify these two sons in a formal way so he can pass the blessing on to them as he adopts them into the family and as he gives them a blessing. And so as part of the procedure here of bringing these two young men into the tribes of Israel. And as he does that, uh, he says, please bring them to me and I will bless them. So his intention from the beginning is to bless Joseph through his two sons. We're told that his eyes were dim with age. He could not see very well. So Joseph's kind of guiding the boys in this situation. By the way, they're both uh, probably around 20 years old by now. Then Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. So uh, Jacob takes his grandsons. He uh, gives them the the kiss and the embrace of a father to a son, so to speak. And then he makes mention, really, of God's gracious provisions. As he's about to do this and he enjoys uh, 
the, the fellowship of his grandsons, he says, I had not thought to see your face. And God has shown me your offspring. Now, 37 years ago, he thought he had lost his son permanently. He was led to believe that uh, Joseph was dead, that he was torn by wild beasts. 20 years went by where he grieved and really perhaps his faith was tested and was failing a little bit because there's nothing in there in that whole section about Jacob and his faith and, and his leadership in the family until after that. And now he is able to spend the last 17 years of his life with his son Joseph and also his grandsons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it calls him uh, upon him to cry out to the Lord, and that's really an expression of God's gracious dealings with him. The only way this could have happened was by God's grace. Now, make mention in verse 12, something that's interesting. Joseph brought them from beside his, Jacob's, knees, and then Joseph bows down with his face to the earth. Now, Joseph, second in command uh, uh, to Pharaoh, uh, Joseph normally is the one to whom you would bow to, but now Joseph bows to his father, and this is kind of a recognition of his father's authority over him and agreement with what he's about to do. But he brought the sons from beside the knees of his father Jacob. And this is significant because in the adoption ceremony, the adoptive child would be placed in the lap or between the knees of the adoptive parent. Now, of course, these boys are too old and he's too frail for them to sit on his knees, but he brings them near And what that is a symbol of is a symbol of of giving birth. It's a symbol of these being your real children through birth. And so again, it's part of the adoption ceremony that these indeed are now sons of um, Jacob on an equal par with the first two sons that were born to him. Now, Jacob expresses his joy at this occasion and his appreciation that God has graciously brought these things about. And as we journey through life, are we more like Jacob or Israel when we contemplate God's providential grace? Jacob, in a sense, represents weakness, lack of faith, looking at the dark side, trying to make your life blessed, no matter what. When we're like that, we're much more prone to gripe and complain, to be pessimistic, to be negative, to see the clouds and not the sun of God's grace. But Israel is the one who rises up on this occasion and uh, could appreciate all the good that God had brought about out of those difficult days. So do you focus on and appreciate God's grace in your life? because that is a fruit of mature faith. Now we look at the third fruit here, and we see that it is a recognition of God's providential guidance. Of course, that goes along with God's grace as well. 
But in verses 15 and 16, he gives the blessing. And it's a blessing that is a reminder of God's hand in his life through all these years. And this has been a major theme of Jacob's journey, uh, beginning at God's first appearance to him back in Bethel, chapter 28, long time ago. Uh, Jacob challenged the Lord at that time to keep the promise that he would be with Jacob and that he would bless him. And here it confesses it again at the very end of his life. He recognizes God's providential workings in three ways. First of all, <clears throat> Jacob's generational connection with those who walk with God. Verse 15. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. He recognizes that his grandfather and his father walked before God. If we back up in the story of Genesis, we find that it enumerates people of faith walk with God. You remember that Enoch walked with God and God took him directly to heaven. You remember that Noah walked with God and God preserved his family through the flood. Now he remembers that Abraham and Isaac as well walk with God. So Jacob associates with these men of history, men of faith, men of God, as he bestows this blessing on the next generation. As believers in Christ, we too are to walk with God and be associated with those who do as well. We're to walk worthy of our calling. We're to walk in love. We're to walk in light. We're to walk in wisdom. There's many allusions to that in the New Testament. And the generational impact of walking with God is powerful. It assures successive generations of hearing the truth of God's word and seeing it lived out in the life of their family, going backwards as well as going forward. And I can be thankful today that I've seen five generations in my lifetime going backward to my grandparents, moving forward to my grandchildren. And that's exactly what was happening uh, to Jacob here, going back to his grandfather, going forward to his grandchildren. There's this line of generational faith, and this is what he appreciates. Then he mentions in the next verse, or at the end of that verse, <clears throat> the God who has fed me all my life long to this day. So here he sees the Lord as his shepherd. And the verb to feed there is the verb from which we draw the term shepherding or being a shepherd. So he has seen God as his shepherd. And now Jacob, for 147 years, pretty much has been a shepherd. He knows all about what it means to be a shepherd and what that means to the sheep. But now he puts God in that position, the one who takes care of him, the one who meets all his needs, both physically and spiritually. And we've seen many incidences where God has been his shepherd, his provider, his protector, his guide. And the word of God makes it clear that he's our shepherd as well. For instance, Psalm 23, we all know that psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
We come to the New Testament. Jesus alludes to himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep in John chapter 10. He also call, is called the great shepherd and the chief shepherd who's coming again to gather his people to himself. So there's this uh, constant display of God being the shepherd of our lives. Finally, he mentions something else about the Lord in verse 16. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. So he sees God as redeemer. We see this generational impact of walking with God. He sees God as shepherd. Now he sees God as redeemer. And the concept of redeemer relates to deliverance. And deliverance uh, from trouble, deliverance from harm, whether it be physical or spiritual in nature. Jacob associates this with the angel. Now, in his first meeting with God, do you remember what happened? Do you remember the circumstances? He saw there angels ascending and descending a ladder between earth and heaven, uh, connoting for us or connecting heaven and earth and displaying God's messengers who do his bidding. Then when he left Laban, actually fleeing Laban and going to the promised land, going to Canaan, uh, he saw a vision of angels as well. And those angels he saw in a protective stance between his camp and that of Laban so that Laban would not harm him. And then in that greatest encounter with God on the way to Canaan, you remember he wrestled with a man, capital M, who may have been the angel of the Lord. Jacob thought he had seen God face to face and, and uh, was thankful that he lived through it. It was a life-changing experience for him, and many times the Lord had rescued him from danger like an angel of deliverance. And we find again in the New Testament that our Redeemer is the Lord Jesus Christ. He rescues us from the greatest danger of all, and that is the power and the punishment of sin. By faith in his work at the cross, we are redeemed from sin's penalty and power for all of eternity. So in these ways, Jacob recognized the providential care of God in his life. And how often do we contemplate the same truth in our own life? Do we appreciate the generational impact of God in our families? Do we think of all the ways he's been our shepherd and our redeemer through life? It's an evidence of a mature faith when we think seriously about these things. The fourth fruit, we find here a realization that God is not bound by human convention or tradition. The Lord is not bound by human tradition. By human conventions. We've seen that again many times in our study. But we find here that Joseph, as he presents his sons to Jacob, he does so in the order of tradition. The firstborn being blessed above the nextborn. So in verse 13, as he comes to receive the blessing from his father, he puts the youngest son 
to his left hand, Israel's left hand, and the oldest son, Manasseh, to his right hand. And the right hand is the the symbol of authority and power and blessing. And uh, Joseph is thinking along the traditional lines that the oldest is going to receive the birthright. But Israel's order is different. In verse 14, we find that Israel stretched out his right hand and he crosses it over to put his hand on Ephraim's head and then he takes his left hand and put it on Manasseh's head and he he switches everything. And he begins the blessing. Well, this doesn't make Joseph very happy, does it, in verse 17. Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim and displeased him, so he actually takes hold of his father's hand and moves it, uh, uh, or attempts to move it on Manasseh's head, but his father says, not so, or, or he says, not so, my father, you're doing it the wrong way. This is not the traditional way. But Jacob knows exactly what he's doing. He did this knowingly back up in the previous verse. But in verse 19, he says, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So Jacob is following God's lead. We're not exactly sure how. But he's doing so in faith. And Jacob has learned that God's ways are not our ways, and our ways are not God's ways. He's learned that the hard way in many situations. And we see this as consistently the case in the book of Genesis, where the chosen is against the conventional way of things, the traditional way of man. We go back to the very beginning. Abel and Seth are chosen over Cain, who is the firstborn. Isaac was chosen over Ishmael. Even though Abraham and Sarah tried to fulfill God's promise by a human tradition. Jacob was then selected over Esau by God. And that's the way it worked out. Even though Isaac tried to reverse the oracle of God and bless Esau instead of Jacob. Of course, in that situation, blind Isaac, depending on his senses, not the will of God, Uh, made the wrong choice, and so he was deceived into making the right choice. And what he did was secret. It was behind closed doors. He didn't bring the family into the situation. But now, blind Jacob is operating by faith. He's doing this openly. His son has come to him with both boys. Uh, In the next scene, he'll be meeting with the whole family, and blessing them openly and honestly because he's understood that there are times that God does not work in the ways of man. And now he's willing to bless the younger because God has somehow revealed this to him. And uh, indeed, as time moves forward, this promise or this blessing will be seen. Ephraim will take a primary role in the northern tribes, 
Joshua and Ephraimite will lead the, the people into the promised land. And Ephraim's name will be so closely related to leadership that it's interchangeable with the name of Israel. So in this act, Jacob is operating in mature faith, trusting God's guidance rather than man's conventions or traditions. The last thing we see here closes out the chapter. The fifth fruit is a firm conviction that if God has kept his word in the past, he will continue to do so in the future. If God can fulfill his promises in past time, then he can fill those promises in future time. Whether I'm here or I'm not here, God is able to do it. We see this in Jacob's blessing and its aftermath. In verse 20, So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. In other words, productive and and prosperous. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel says some last words to Joseph. In verse uh, um, verse, uh, 21, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Now let's back up a little bit, and let's see Israel's blessing on Joseph's sons back in verse 16. All right, he says, Bless the lads, let my name be upon them, in the name of of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into multitude in the midst of the earth. So let them grow into a multitude. That's the future outlook. Now, Jacob at this time is enjoying a very large family. Seventy people go down into Egypt, and now it's even more than that because he has sons, grandsons, and great-grandsons as well. But even though this is a huge family, very large family by this time, it is not a multitude by any stretch of the imagination. In order for that to happen, decades, even centuries have to pass. And so he is believing in what God has promised. The passing of blessing has to include faith that God's promise over time is going to develop in the face of obstacles and threats He's the one who has to fulfill that word. And we know from our reading of the whole Bible that it takes four centuries for this to develop and for them to go into the promised land. But Jacob had to accept it on faith. He's about to die. And as God kept his promises to his forefathers up to this point and in his own life, he knows God will keep his word in the future. So Israel indicates that by putting the blessing on a multitude in the future. Now, the second thing is, Israel indicates his wish that his name will be on his progenitors, that was on his progenitors, will also be on the sons of Joseph. He says, let my name be named upon them, and the name of my fathers, Abraham 
and Isaac. So, a name encompasses the whole being of that person. To carry on the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we will receive, we will uh, see many times in the rest of the Old Testament means to follow them in faith and character even though we are weak and flawed as they were. It means that no matter how frail and failing we may be, our trust is not in ourselves but in our God, in his grace, in his power, in his providence. And it's an admission here that if God's promise is to reach fruition, we have to trust him to do that. And that name must also include the name of the coming Messiah who perfectly followed the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is uh, is only by faith in his name that the promises of God will come to fruition for us. It's only through him that we participate in the eternal kingdom of God. Then Israel gives his word that we read in verse 21 to Joseph, which also is a word of faith toward the future because he's confident that God will be with Joseph and bring him back to the land of your fathers, which is the land of promise, the land of Canaan. He says, moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers. That's the idea of the double portion, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Now, we have no place that describes what this is exactly about. Uh, We can conjecture. It's interesting that the word portion sounds like Shechem. We all know what happened at Shechem. Um, Perhaps... uh, At some point in time, Jacob went there and and just took that whole area. This also can mean a ridge of land, but whatever it means, it means that he has faith that his son Joseph is going to go back there and uh, his descendants are going to inherit this land that God has provided through Jacob, their father. So again, it's a word that believes that what God has done in the past, he continues to do in the future, and we can trust him to do that. And even though Jacob is going to die, and he's not going to see all this fulfilled, he promises that his son and his son's sons and future generations, that God somehow will bring this all about. Well, what do we bring then from all of this kind of a self-application? But our faith often fails when we don't remember that, well, God keeps his word now and in the future just as faithful as he has in the past. We have to remember that. As we come to these five evidences, if you will, of mature faith, Let's ask ourselves some questions. First of all, do you always believe that God keeps his word? What do you do when you doubt it? That's an interesting question. I'll let you answer it. Secondly, do you appreciate God's gracious dealings in your life? 
And how you go about doing that, you have to think about it. You have to concentrate on it. Thirdly, do you recognize God's providence in your life as your shepherd and as your redeemer? And again, these are things that we have to be thoughtful of and thankful for. Fourthly, have you found out that God is not bound by the same things that we are? That he's capable of fulfilling his promises without our help? And sometimes in an uncommon, even miraculous way. He's not bound by these earthly things. And finally, are you convinced that God holds the future in his hands? That your future is secure in him as you place your faith in him? A mature faith is going to be constantly evidencing these fruits. Heavenly Father, we do pray today that you help us to learn the lesson of a mature faith. We're thankful, Lord, that over the years of his life, through the hard times and through the blessed times, Jacob learned these lessons. Jacob, at the end of his life, was dependent upon you and thankful for your blessings and your providence and your grace in his life. He realized, Lord, that uh, he could trust you to fulfill your word, that he didn't have to help you to do that. And Lord, he had a firm hope in the end that your word, even though he did not see it fully accomplished, would be accomplished in future generations. Help us, Lord, to have that same maturity, that same faith in our own lives. As we go through difficult times, as we are uh, stressed by the current life situations, as we wonder what's going to happen in our future, help us, Lord, to be firm in your promises that nothing can really change your plan. Nothing can keep us from uh, entrance into your kingdom because we have a mature faith in Christ. Bless us, Lord, with these thoughts this morning we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.